0: what I want to do is take a little bit of a running start by going back to the last portion of Luke because it is a continuing work. I'm going to read a portion from the end of Luke chapter 24 starting at 44 and then just hope to bring you some thoughts to introduce things from the first three verses of Acts this morning. The scene in Luke 24 is a resurrection appearance of Jesus in the midst of The disciples, when they are still amazed, hardly able to believe that he is real, and uh, he invites them to touch his hands and feet and believe that he indeed is real, even eats in their presence. We find this beginning at verse 44 of Luke 24. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now those words take us right into the opening of Acts. I read just the first three verses of Acts 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Our Father, we pray that you would lead us to learn this book again, to see it with new eyes, to thrill at the power of what you did in founding your church, and to believe that you are still at work in your church today. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. I really believe that as you would go back and count through all the Christian centuries from the first until the present, the 21st century bears a great similarity of situation for Christianity to the first century. You might say we are so removed technologically and culturally from the first century that you can hardly imagine how things are the same. And yet I would say to you that despite the transition from the days of the Roman Empire to the days that we know today in the 21st century, the similarities are actually striking. We still live amid a very secular society, More and more, particularly in America, our society is dominated by secularism and skepticism and increased hostility to the message of Christianity on every hand. People are shocked if they don't know the the fact that you've probably heard before that more people have given their lives for the mere fact of being a Christian in the last 100 years then the number if we would total all the martyrdoms from the time of the cross until the turn of the 20th century. That's just absolutely amazing. People can't believe that. That martyrdom and persecution is going on in our world today against the message of Christ with a great ferocity. More have died in the last hundred years than died in the Colosseum with the lions coming for them or being burned at the stake through all the centuries. We can do things today that are amazing, our medical and technological progress. We can send an email across the ocean in seconds to somebody in, in Britain or China. But it seems like the question of our day is, do we have anything to say? We can communicate... But what do we have to say? Do we have a message to live for and a message to die for as Christians did 20 centuries ago? We look back and it seems like a very marked difference to study Acts and see a young church alive with dynamism and courage and great prayer and deeds in which miracles were being done and Many, many people were being gathered into churches across the whole Mediterranean basin and spreading out into the wider world. And yet, we come today and we say, is that church still around? Sure, we have people committed to Christianity calling themselves Christians. And yet, sadly, many, especially in the West, who call themselves that display a spirituality that is decayed and worldly and almost moribund. But yet we forget that we can go to Africa, we can go to South America, we can go to parts of Asia, and the church of the first century is still with us. There are places in Africa where people are coming to Christ so rapidly and so many that they cannot find pastors enough There are pastors who have a a circuit of six or eight villages where they go and preach and just continually circulate because they're the only one that has a Bible or has any kind of study books who can open the Word of God and teach young believers who are hungry to hear the Word. We wonder what's happened to the church in America. Do we know what that vitality is anymore? Well, beginning today, and as I've said, continuing probably into the spring of 2013, I hope to explore Dr. Luke's history of the early Christian church in the Acts of the Apostles. If you are a longtime Westminster person, you might be saying, I'm only getting reruns these days. He preached through Luke in 96 and 97. He preached through Acts in 98, and I was here. Well, I promise you, you won't hear reruns. I will go back to God's word each time. I will try to dig around its roots and understand what God is saying and give it fresh applications as the Lord makes himself known. But here this morning, I just have a modest proposal to introduce these things. I give you these propositions this morning. One, I want you to see Acts as the hinge of the New Testament story. Two, I want you to see Acts. That Christian faith is thoroughly rooted in hard proofs of history. And three, perhaps the main point today is that you would learn that the biography of Jesus is still being written. First of all, the book we call Acts is the hinge of the New Testament story. Months ago, we studied Luke. It's a long gospel. In fact, people are very surprised to find out that this Greek physician, man of intelligence and training, a scientist, who was not one of the original 12 disciples around Jesus in his, in his earthly life, we don't even know if Luke ever met Jesus. Probably he did not. He had totally second-hand contact, but he came to the sources, he talked to the people, and he wrote an orderly account that constitutes, in Luke and Acts combined, 30% of all the words in the New Testament. Luke wrote more words in the New Testament than Paul did or John. Now, Luke 1.1, you might recall, had an introduction in which he wrote to a friend who he called Theophilus, perhaps a real name, possibly not, we're not sure. It means lover of God. But he was writing to this man who was probably a believer already and needed his faith to be strengthened. Now Acts 1.1 is written to the same man, dedicated to him. In my former book, O Theophilus... I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until he was taken up into heaven. So there's, here's the clue right away that Acts is book two of a planned set, a two-volume work, Luke and Acts. Scholars will write Luke slash Acts as if it were one continuous unit. Why don't you just think about, if you possibly can, what a glaring gap, what a historic Grand Canyon would exist in your New Testament if we did not have the book of Acts? You'd have four Gospels, you could read them, and each of them would end with slight differences of viewpoint with the facts of Jesus' death and resurrection. All right? Now you've got a gap, and then you come to Romans chapter 1, and somebody named Paul is writing to a church. What's a church? Who's Paul? Where did this come from? You see, we would know nothing if we did not have the historic hinge that Acts provides us with. My wife and I are watching some videos right now, a British-produced series of uh, videos based in the, I guess, uh, early 20th century, something we, we didn't see when it came out the first time around in Masterpiece Theater or whatever it is. And uh, we've gotten through four episodes And so we're sending off for Netflix to provide the next four episodes on a disc. Now, if they, by some mistake, send us the third disc that starts with episode eight, we will be bereft because we won't know what episodes five, six, and seven, or I don't know if I counted that right, but whatever. We won't have the middle. We'll need the middle to have a continuous story. And if we left that out, I'm sure, and just jumped into nine or something like that, we would, well, where'd that character come from? Well, how did that that person die? We need the hinge. And that's what Acts becomes for us. This story of ordinary people, and we need to be reminded of that. People like ourselves, with fears, with difficulties, with hard relationships sometimes with one another, with misunderstandings, with heresy breaking out among them, people who were never quite sure how should we pray, what, what would God want to do here? Ordinary people worked upon by God to do absolutely extraordinary things. That's the hinge in the book of Acts. Now, just leave that and move on quickly today. Secondly, I look at Acts 1-3. And let me emphasize these words as we read, after his suffering, Jesus showed himself to the apostles and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. This is a big word for Luke. After all, he's a scientist. He's interested in proof. Convincing proofs to tell us that Christian faith is rooted in history. Christian faith is not an idea. It's not a philosophy. It's not a set of ethical rules that you can obey to have a nicer life or become a better person. Christianity, and Luke is is emphasizing it very well, is a historically based account of a divine person, Jesus Christ. And the historical facts of his life, death, bodily resurrection, ascension to heaven, and reign from heaven are absolutely essential. Luke is a man of facts, you have to almost be a senior citizen to remember the very early TV show called Dragnet. Let me just get a little show of hands. Who can remember Dragnet? Oh, more than I thought. Okay, there's more old people here than I thought. Uh, you know, Dragnet had these hard-bitten police detectives who would go in, and I think it was Joe Friday was the man's name, and uh, you know they'd investigate and they'd come and interview somebody that saw something, and just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. Give us the facts. That's the kind of man Luke is, just the facts. He's going to tell you what he believes is true and what God has revealed through Jesus Christ based on the facts. God showed the facts that Jesus was miraculously born, that he fulfilled the expectations of the Old Testament prophets, that he died in the place of sinners, that he rose in power convincingly that he ascended visibly in a miracle to the right hand of God. Those are facts that this man comes to give us so that our belief in him would be convinced and well-proven. Because nothing less, you see, would have turned these people around. These who were with Christ right after the resurrection, they were defeated, they were depressed, they were cast down, they were ready to go back to the fishing nets or wherever they'd come from, the tax collector's table, just let us get out of Jerusalem without being arrested as soon as everything had blown over was their attitude. And then in their midst appeared Christ alive who said, touch me and see for a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And they became convinced, not tentatively convinced, totally convinced, so much so that nearly every one of them Went to their death for this cause and for the belief in these facts that Jesus was a risen Lord. You know, we tend to perhaps exaggerate the apostles in a way we should not. There's a way in which we should highly respect them because they're utterly unique, but we should also remember they were simply human beings. I don't know if you've ever Googled your name. If you don't have a computer, you don't know what it means to Google your name. So sorry, I'm not speaking to you right now. But most of you know what it means to Google your name. You put your name in for an internet search to see if you as an individual turn out. Now, if your name is Robert Smith, uh, you're probably not going to do too well. Unless you're an extremely famous Robert Smith. And my name is relatively common. But I had fun doing this. And if I, especially if I do it with the reverend. Michael A. Rogers. Put that in Google. It's interesting. I come up down the list there somewhere, largely because of the church or radio association or something. But it's always interesting to me, another guy that comes up, the apostle Michael A. Rogers. That's not me. It's a fellow living in Norfolk, Virginia. I assume he's an African-American brother, and he's head of some kind of a denomination or church in in the Norfolk area. And there he is, pretty prominent, the apostle, Michael Rogers. Well, I'd love to meet that guy. I would assume we're brothers in Christ. I assume we worship the same Lord. I wish I could say to him, brother, you know, you got to be careful of your title. You're not an apostle. God chose and selected apostles very uniquely, one time only, for a particular errand and ministry in the history of the church. It was for the transitional time from the resurrection of Jesus until we had the scriptures complete in our hand. That was the task of the apostles. To testify, actually the definition we'll find as we go through Acts of an apostle is a witness to the resurrection. To be an apostle, you had to be someone who could closely bear witness to the fact that Jesus was risen. And, of course, once that generation was gone, there weren't people that could bear that witness anymore. And Jesus spoke through those apostles, at least through many of them, in a unique way so as to give us the message of the New Testament Scripture, which, interestingly, in the the little letter of 2 Peter, Peter is writing, and he talks about Paul, his fellow apostle, writing, and he he speaks about Paul's letters and, and refers to them and says, as in other Scriptures, the apostles had a consciousness that God was giving his word through them, establishing his word. And once the scripture was completed, the time for an apostle had gone. But let's remember, if we celebrate the uniqueness of these people, we also need to remember their humanity. And they were simply human beings. They had squabbles, Paul and, uh, and Barnabas. Great friends who had traveled and worked together had to part ways over a dispute whether Mark should be with them or not because one thought he was faithful, the other thought, oh, no, write him off. Things like that happened to apostles. They were very human people. They were people who came to these facts that they reported originally as skeptics. They had to be convinced by the facts of history, but they got those facts. They got the proof that their minds craved. And once God revealed it to them, they were able to communicate it to us so that they would be able to weave together. You see the emphasis at the end of Luke? It was the main reason I read from Luke 24 was the fact that these apostles had revealed to them by Jesus himself the ties that that bound the New Testament gospel together with the Old Testament prophets so that the scriptures could be presented as one unified message, one book, bound in history and yet revealed by an eternal and supernatural God. And so they were the vessel that said that Christian faith is rooted in history and they presented this powerful case for Christ as Savior. But thirdly today, the main issue I wanted you to see spins off this opening verse of Acts when I say that Jesus' biography is still being written. I'm meaning this. Acts 1 1. Remember, he's addressing Theophilus, a man he's spoken to before, and saying, Now this is related to what I started to say in my former gospel. And he says, That I formally wrote to you about all that Jesus began to do and teach. The implication is very clear that Jesus is still acting and teaching, he's not done. Acts is more than just a lucid history, it's a book of continuations. It comes to an end indeed in chapter 28, that's the last chapter the book has, and yet even as you read Acts 28, if you'd want to do that later, you could see that the book ends with a sort of, well, what's going to happen next? Because Paul is in prison, he's awaiting his sentence, it's not sure And it's almost as though there are pages that aren't there. Now, I don't suggest to you that somehow Acts is truly incomplete or that some archaeologist is going to dig up and find five more pages that should have been in Acts. I'm not saying that. I'm saying there's this sense of yearning forward that God is still working. He's not done. There's more to do. And even in the way that Acts ends, that is communicated. John Stott, who has a wonderful... Commentary on the book of Acts says, Luke intends to write about all that Jesus continued to do after his ascension to heaven, all that he did through apostles whose sermons and miracles were done entirely by Christ's power in the Holy Spirit. That's an important phrase. Christ's power in the Holy Spirit. There have been people that have said... And I don't think the necessarily this title of a book is is an inspired thing because actually early manuscripts give this slightly different title. Some One uh, major early manuscript simply calls the book Acts. Others tend to call it Acts of the Apostles. But someone has said it could have been called the Acts of Christ's power in the Holy Spirit. Because really it's not the apostles themselves that... That are featured here. They are like God's instruments on which music of praise and information and powerful revelation come through. You know, it's always interesting to see, uh, we sometimes have impromptu orchestras here and the folks will do their practice before and then as you are coming into the pew, they'll go out for a little break before the, the time of the service or the concert and maybe they're bass violin or their viola or their cello, their clarinet, whatever, is left here. The instruments are there. And you don't expect for a minute that those instruments are somehow going to come to life and play music for you. You know that those instruments are awaiting human beings who are going to breathe into them or know what to do with the strings and the bow and so on. Well, I would say to you that the importance of the apostles is great, and yet they are nothing. Nothing unless the power of Christ in the Holy Spirit is bringing a message through them, just as God would play an instrument. And we're going to get into the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in several messages in early chapters here, but you can think of the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity here, as really the continuing presence of Jesus at work in the world. Unseen, yes, but powerful. Moving people, changing people opening people's thinking up to things they would never take on by themselves. Acts 16.7 is only one place that in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Jesus, the ongoing presence of Jesus. I know people who sometimes get nervous when you get into the second chapter of Acts. They say, oh, okay, we're going to have that strange, bizarre chapter about pentecost and flames of fire and people speaking in languages that they didn't natively speak and so on and and they'll say oh boy you know all that stuff makes me nervous those pentecostals those charismatics those emotional people that get all carried away in this stuff i'm a presbyterian i'll have none of that i would like to put presbyterians to rest here if we are not people in whom the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Holy Spirit is still working, then we are not Christians at all. It's not a question of being a charismatic or a Presbyterian. It's a question of Romans 8, 9 saying anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. Unless your life has been opened up and touched and, and is even now being changed by the Spirit of God, You don't even belong to Christ in the first place. You may have some formal recognition of him, but he does not dwell in you. It's utterly amazing to see what God can do when he gets hold of a small band of people inhabited by his Holy Spirit. You have to try. It's very hard for us to try to really understand this small group of people gathered in the first couple chapters of Acts. Men and women alike, They had a a strange, confused spirit. What happened to Jesus? How he died? They were overcome by the tragedy. Now they're swept off their feet by the evidences of the resurrection. What are we going to do now? Jesus said, wait, I'm going to do something. Wait for it. And we're going to find out what that was in the next couple weeks. But as the Holy Spirit of Christ came in them, it was absolutely amazing. Here were people with no Great treasury of money to spend, no publicity managers, no satellite TV hookups, no government sponsorship, no internet, no website, not even any trained preachers. And they changed the world. They overcame enormous obstacles. They moved against people who hated them, people with official edicts and swords in their hands, Caesar was in power. This is the waning days of the Roman Empire, but Caesar was still very much in power. And it's amazing that at the end of one generation, you could have gone into Caesar's household in Rome, the capital of the known world at that time, at least the Mediterranean world, and in Caesar's kitchen and among Caesar's palace guards in the barracks, they were talking about Jesus. And two centuries or more later, when Rome began to wane and fall, the name of the leader that was on the lips of that whole part of the world was not Caesar anymore. It was Jesus Christ. How did that happen? In just a couple centuries, Luke is telling us it was Christ's power working by his Holy Spirit, his power that continues to work. It began in the Gospels And he's going to show here in Acts how it continues, not just in the first century, but even unto the 21st century. Are we people who believe that? Do we really believe that the same power that worked in the first century church is available to Christians today? Or are you a, I would call you perhaps a museum Christian? You see, a museum Christian is a person who comes to the Christian faith, maybe with a certain amount of respect and interest, but they approach it about like they would go to tour a museum. I've gone to lots of museums. The Buffalo, New York Museum of Science was my favorite place when I was a small kid to just go and look at all the exhibits there, big old dusty buffalo right in the lobby. Got to have a buffalo if you're from Buffalo. And... Uh, I've always loved museums, you know, whether it's a museum of Indian archaeology or science or astronomy or what it's all about, perhaps the history of some locality. But you know what you're doing when you're going to a museum. You're looking at artifacts, things that point you to the past and say, here, respect this past. It tells a story. It's a story that you ought to know. Well, I really think there are people that regard Christianity as about like that. They say, "Well, well, we've got to go to church. We've got to have our Sunday visit to the Christian Museum to learn about the artifacts of Jesus and the apostles and the prophets and sort of admire what took place way back then, back in the day, as they say. Is that your Christianity? Or is your Christianity an experience of Christ's power unfolding in the Holy Spirit? All the difference in the world, you see. And Luke is saying, I wrote a book about what Jesus began to do. Now I'm going to tell you what he is continuing to do. And that book will spill right off the last page, right on through Acts chapter 28 into our lives today. If we are indeed God's people, saved, redeemed, transformed by the power of Christ in the Holy Spirit. When we approach the book of Acts, it makes me think of some words of G.K. Chesterton, a great writer, brilliant man, Englishman of of the 19th century. Here's something Chesterton said. I'll repeat it twice. Christianity has not been tried and found to be wanting. It has been thought to be difficult and thus rarely tried. Those are wise words. Christianity has not been tried and found to be wanting. It has been thought to be difficult and thus rarely tried. Have we lived our lives in the expectation that Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God who came into flesh to live on this earth to preach redemption by a cross that he went to willingly where he died and then rose and then ascended to heaven where he rules at the right hand of God today that this Jesus Christ lives in us and his spirit is in us working his change and his power and his salvation in this world today. Or is yours just a museum Christianity? In Second Corinthians 3 3, believers in Jesus were told by Paul there that they were, I quote it, letters written by the Spirit of the Living God on tablets of human hearts. Is that you? Is God writing on the tablet of your life and your heart and your mind and your will a new letter, a letter of who he is? And how he can change a person, how he can forgive, how he can work in grace so that other people can read it and say, that's a life that's really quite different. I don't think I understand that person. I'd better find out what that's all about. As Christian disciples, you and I are intended to be living pages written upon as God composes the ongoing saga Of Acts chapter 29. May we live there. May our light shine there as the Spirit of God does a new thing in us that he is designed to do. Our Father, we would yield ourselves to learn some things as we study Acts. Maybe we look on it as a static history of old-time events, things done once that are not done again, But I pray, Lord God, that we would be wise and see the many things you were doing then that you're still doing now. Forgive your church where she is so hidebound, tradition held back and captivated, where she has her patterns of doing things in man's ways and will not listen to your spirit. Renew us, we pray, as we learn your word again and again. Work in us, perhaps someone even for the first time, who would bow to Jesus Christ and say, can your spirit come into me? Do that, Lord Jesus. Forgive me and give me a new life. I know you will do this, Lord, and I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.